Welcome to another episode of Facts. It's been a while since we've been on because a lot's been going on in the world of apologetics and also in the life of Stephen Boyce. So we've been doing a lot of different things, uh, preparing for an upcoming conference to speak at, uh, as well as adding to my schedule, teaching four days a week, an apologetics class at a local private school here in South Carolina at eight o'clock in the morning with predominantly juniors and seniors. Been a huge blessing uh, to do that, going through multiple questions that uh, high schoolers have going into their time of college preparation and trying to train them ahead of time with what kind of things to consider and to come really concrete in their faith on before entering into a lion's den of philosophy and forms of criticism and different viewpoints that are going to be very much against what they've been taught in their faith. Not that we're against our faith being challenged, but what we want to do is make sure we're actually preparing our next generation for the obstacles ahead. Um, one of the biggest things that we find in apologetics, especially at Explore Christianity, is how many people have walked away or have thought of walking away after the fact and then coming to the realization of the truth and after battling hard battles say things like, I really wish I'd have learned those things before I was challenged in that way. And so it's a good thing that we are able to minister and to teach and to train a younger generation before they're ever exposed to a one-sided view. Now, they would say, their professors that they're going to receive in colleges say that we have a one-sided view, but we in our a group of apologists believe in actually presenting all the evidence, including every worldview, and actually just challenging everybody to think through all possibilities and think critically of those possibilities and then come to their own conclusion. I have yet to make a statement, will continue to refrain from making a statement of you should believe what I believe or you should uh, say what I say and hold to what I hold because I have a PhD or I've been in Christianity a long time, or I'm an apologist, or I work with a bunch of apologists, like those things are not evidence. Those things are not reasons to just go along with it. So it's been a great opportunity to get involved there. I know Jonathan Sheffield, one of our apologists, works very closely with campus ministry uh, there in the Ratio Christi down in Texas. So we're thankful that he's a part of our ministry as well. But because of that, my time has been even more limited but I do want to make sure to put out a video periodically going through the canon of Scripture. And today I want to talk to you about the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're going to hit the Old Testament here for a minute. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because also on Tuesday night at my church, Fellowship Greenville, I'm teaching on Messianic hope in the book of Isaiah. So it's very current and ready on my mind to discuss. And the reason of this discussion is because there is a great criticism in scholarship today that would critique the book of Isaiah on the basis that it is split into either two or three authors. Uh, given the different changes of genre, the changes of emphasis, the changes of scenery, seems to create this idea that there were actually two Isaiahs, or possibly some would say, three Isaiahs. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the internal perspective on that. And then I want to talk about the external perspective. 
just just to be clear, I want to spend a lot more of my time looking at some of the data within the text themselves while also considering a couple of thoughts. But the main one I want to jump to immediately is that when we talk about Isaiah as a whole, there are reasons to believe that there is one writer of the text. Uh, the main reason is when you look at the earliest attestation, it is one compiled group. Um, even some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, although they are uh, broken up in sections, but one of the longest fragments actually extends in from 39 through 40. But when you're considering the layout that they're giving of our work, they would say that the first Isaiah wrote from 1 to chapter 39. And then a second Isaiah, probably somebody living during the exile themselves, uh, which is called a Deutero-Isaiah, wrote from about 40 to 55. Some who hold to Deutero-Isaiah would say that he wrote all the way to the 66. But then there's some that believe in a threefold Isaiah or a third Isaiah that comes in the equation. And they would say that this author came after the exile, picks up in chapter 56, and extends into chapter 66, which is the end of the book. So that, that is the main two to three person Isaiah hypothesis that is being circulated in scholarship and in, in academia in our world today. A couple of reasons to be highly skeptical of this view, much like many of the canonical arguments today, is nobody held this view in ancient antiquity, early church history, Jewish writings of any sort until about the 18th into the 19th century. And the reason predominantly for that is the layout of the criteria or in their perspective, the style of writing changes. The scenery of the, the book itself changes. They seem to paint that, well, this is during exile in this section here. You can tell these are exilic connotations. And then at the end of it, it's like, well, these are post-exilic connotations. These are influenced by the hopes of resurrection. And they would say the theology that is built in those sections are consistent with other prophets of that time. And therefore, they would lay out their claim. But again, it must be noted that nobody else actually held that view. Um, like I said, the Dead Sea Scrolls, though there are massive sections of Isaiah, they are not fully complete from start to finish, but there are extended sections going from 39 to 40, which would be overlapping the two people hypothesis in the equation. But it also should be noted as well that the Septuagint itself does not translate three Isaiahs or two Isaiahs, but actually one whole Isaiah from chapter one to chapter 66. Now, I do want to state within that framework that we do believe, and I do believe, that the book was strategically separated by genre as well as by thought. And what I mean by that is I do believe that there is strategy to the layout of the book. I don't actually believe that Isaiah is in any chronological order, although I think it's very, very, very close. Uh, for example, I think chapter six is probably a much earlier writing and a event more specifically than that which has already been stated before that point. Now, it could be uh, as a whole, it is in chronological order, and I'm actually fine with that. But I don't think that the book of Isaiah itself is every bit in a time segment layout event for event. I do believe it was structured the way that it was. I want you to consider that the structure was probably intentional by somebody who's editing the book. 
Now, the question that comes into mind is, is did Isaiah edit the book or did somebody else edit the book? And I believe that it's a combination. I actually believe that it is a combination of Isaiah and his disciples or his students or his, uh, if you would, sons of the prophets program, uh, similar to uh, Samuel and his sons of the prophet. And then you look at Elijah and Elisha and you look at their their companionship and, and their training work and how they issued out their, their status. It seems to be a regular thing that stayed consistent amongst some of the prophets up to that point. I mean, we, we see no problem with this. Even when you look at Micah, the prophet, who is a companion of Isaiah, Micah himself would have come in one king later than Isaiah. If you look at the beginning of chapter one of Isaiah, you see the layout of who he was involved in as kings. Uh, you would see that there's a, a natural flow to his ministry from beginning to end. And then you have this other prophet off to the side, named, named uh, Micah, who is coming in at the same time as Isaiah. But it must be noted that he comes later and that he uses some of Isaiah's work. In fact, it's even argued in chapter four of Micah, whether he is borrowing from Isaiah or whether Isaiah is borrowing from him. It would appear to me that he, Micah, is borrowing from Isaiah, given the fact that he came later and if he is a part of any kind of companionship or possible training uh, or schooling or commitment to the work of God in the nation of Israel through the prophets, they would have been companions preaching similar messages and actually building on one another's work. And I think that's actually what Isaiah is doing. He's leaving, leaving a framework that future prophets will build on. There's no doubt when you look at the end of chapter 39 of Isaiah, going into chapter 40, there is a framework building that Isaiah has established that well over 100 years later, you have Daniel the prophet coming behind and actually pointing without verbally saying Isaiah said this, pointing to the reality and fulfillment of what was said to Hezekiah in chapter 39 about his descendants who would be taken hostages into a foreign land of Babylon. And in doing that, we find the framework is established, but then fulfilled in future prophets. Even Micah himself elaborating on many of the themes that Isaiah has presented. For example, we talked about in my class on Tuesdays <clears throat> in my church that when you go to the idea of the stump and this shoot that's coming out of it, and it speaks of the rod there of Jesse, and how that brings kind of a odd companionship into the equation, given the fact that the messianic figure, both in Isaiah and the other prophets, is built around the person of David. And even when you go to the finality of that prophecy, when you look at the book of Revelation, John the Apostle writes that it is the root of David, as if he was considering the Isaiah prophecy, but correcting it in a manner. But it's actually not that he's correcting Isaiah as much as he's showing that the fulfillment of Isaiah has been brought to full end. The question that had to be asked is why the root, why the stump, why all this figurative language in chapter 11, why does it go back to the prophecy of Jesse? Well, it's quite figurative in the sense of that it's going back to this, the humble state before David was a king. 
that the Messiah that was going to come to redeem out of the ashes, out of the chopped down trees that were burnt, that were already established earlier in Isaiah, this stump, this holy seed, this stump that was presented earlier in Isaiah in chapter six, this idea of life coming from death is showing that the messianic hope would come through a humble state. Jesse was of the town of Bethlehem. Jesse was of a humble manor who had sons who worked for him as farming and as, as shepherding like David was. And that actually the Messiah would come from that kind of state, humble, low shepherding. In fact, that's exactly how Isaiah later presents the Messiah. And Ezekiel built on that actually later on over a hundred years later, speaking of the Messiah coming as a shepherd like unto David. And so it's this idea that, the, that there's hints that Messiah would come in a humble state before king state. There's already hints of that. Micah builds on that even more. He goes into chapter five and he states that it is from Bethlehem who is the least amongst these towns and villages. Out of it would come a ruler, a mighty ruler who would be from everlasting. So Micah takes this concept that is being presented by Isaiah that, that Messiah will come from a humble state of Jesse. And over here, Micah is actually building on that further by actually giving a specific location, which is the city of David, uh, going back into his childhood, not his kingly set up city in Jerusalem, but his childhood village. And Jesse being the one that was the one in charge and the father and the leader of that time. And then by the time you get to the book of Revelation, Christ has already resurrected. He's the lamb that was slain. He is now resurrected. He has defeated death. So therefore his root, that shoot of Jesse is no longer just in its infant stage. It is brought to its completed stage. It is fully produced, not just a humble Messiah servant, but in the end, a conquering king out of David's line. That's why John uses the word David in reference to Isaiah 11, which uses the word Jesse. There's a building there. But what you see through the prophets, these two specifically, is that there is consistency within themselves and that they are building on each other's understanding of these unveiled prophecies from God. Now, let's bring it back to specifically Isaiah itself and its layout. One of the biggest arguments is that it is absolutely different in its layout. It's absolutely um, unique to its own sections, and it's no way one guy did all of that work. Now, let me bring up a couple of things. To believe that Isaiah would have written the same way over his entire lifespan as a prophet. By the time chapter 6 comes around, it is believed that Isaiah is in his early to mid-20s, during the year that King Uzziah died. That's where it all began for him. He gets this vision in chapter six, and he sees himself as a prophet during the time of the kings. He establishes it in chapter one, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which was during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, within that, he's already established a framework of who 
he was in the leadership of. So right there with Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and then even extended after that, he was killed uh, more than likely by Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. When you deal with the prophet himself, that is a long tenure as serving to the kings and delivering constant messages and writings on their behalf. Now, I look at myself and I go through my stages of life and I'm at the age of 33 now. And when I, I just turned 33 this month and, and just thinking about when I graduated my undergrad at 21 years old, some of the research papers I've gone back to in my computer and I look at them and I'm like, what in the world was I doing? That is awful. How did I ever get a good grade for this? And then I look into my early 20s into uh, really around my mid-20s when I finished my master's degree and I look at some of my master's research and I go, wow, well, I really developed from the time I finished my undergrad to my master's. And then I look at my work and my doctoral work and going into my PhD program and I look at the research I've done in the Gnostic Gospels and I, and I go into those writings. I say, man, what a major improvement in five years from the way I wrote in my master's program to my PhD program. And so what I'm saying is, is we as people are constantly developing and picking up on new technique and style and influence by other writers um, as a person who finds great interest in the work of Tolkien and others like C.S. Lewis. I find myself writing differently after reading many of their works. It influences me as a writer. All that to say that if Isaiah was a, was a prophet to the kings from the time of Uzziah, even to the extended edition of Hezekiah and his sons, what we will find is that we would be fair to assess that a man in his 20s, by the time Uzziah reigned, to the end of his life would have developed greatly in some of his publications and research and the way that he wrote. And even as times developed, he seems to introduce by the end of the book the style of writing, which is called apocalyptic. He really becomes the one who originates this. One of the things that I call Isaiah in my class regularly is he is an Edenic prophet. Uh, one of the things that I think about Isaiah is he's constantly giving the imagery of Eden. And now this is, this is so important when we're talking about trying to identify an author in the book of Isaiah is do we see similarities even in the genre changes from the beginning sections from 139 all the way into the secondary sections up to 55 from 40, and then into really the mainline apocalyptic visionary going from 56 to 66? Do we see, though different genre, consistent themes? I would say absolutely yes. The Edenic narrative never changes. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation, eternal state. Messiah delivers his people from the bondage of sin and enemy and brings them into the new state. He turns wildernesses into forests. He takes dead trees and brings new life. He takes that which was barren and makes it whole and brings life from barrenness. This is the regular theme from the beginning of chapter one into the end of chapter 66 is that life comes from the dead and messianic hope is found in the DNA, in the DNA bloodline of King David and that God will bring his Messiah through this state.
there's a consistency in the understanding of the seed of the woman going back into our passage in Genesis 3.15, that the seed would come. This seed concept is fully developed by Isaiah by the end of the book, but he gives only small evolutionary portions of it. In chapter 7, he gives a hint by the concept of a virgin will conceive. Why did he do that? Why would that be the sign given to Ahaz? Well, it takes us back to Genesis 3, the seed of the Woman, the seed of the woman. Women do not have seed. Men carry the seed. So that concept had always been mysterious, even at the time that God delivered it to Adam and Eve in the garden. But within this, it starts developing and evolving into a more mature state of prophecy by the time Isaiah is on the scene in chapter 7 with Ahaz. The sign that is given is that a woman, a virgin, would conceive, hint, hint, Edenic state, taking us back to an Edenic fall. And that in the development of that, we see that a child would be born. Unto us a son is given. Seemingly the micro prophecy of that is that the immediate effect would have been relevant, in my opinion, to King Hezekiah. The virgin conceiving would have been Ahaz is probably soon to be wife who was not yet uh, with child because she was not yet married, but that she would conceive. I know there's debate about Isaiah's wife in the next chapter. Uh, I don't have time to get into all that because we're focusing predominantly on authorship. But my perspective is that the virgin that would conceive was a sign to Ahaz specifically to his relevance. And that would have been because God was not going to establish his covenant with Ahaz specifically because he did not believe God's promise. And as a result, we see Ahaz is cast out into a burial in the city of Jerusalem, but not with the kings of Israel. Ahaz was excluded. He was cut off. He was tainted from God's plan, but that he would establish it later with somebody else. And that somebody else would have been Hezekiah. But the thing is, Hezekiah could not be the macro prophecy of the virgin that would conceive because the seed of the woman is not fully fulfilled in a woman who ended up having in intimacy with a man. Number one, number two, Hezekiah failed to be the proper Messiah. Although he delivered God's people, although he created the catapult, he brought a lot of the nations around them into subjection, including the Philistines and taxation for the first time. Not even David brought the Philistines to the state of subjectivity that Hezekiah did. Hezekiah was a messianic figure, but then we see his story in chapter 38 and 39 where he fails to be the true deliverer that would come. He cannot be the finality. He cannot be the macro fulfillment of the micro fulfilled prophecy. So Hezekiah was a symbol of a greater prophecy to come. He was a messianic figure, but he wasn't the Messiah himself. And then that develops more into chapter nine. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Now we don't just have a general term of seed. We now have a gender attached to the seed in chapter number nine. You have a child who is a son. But in the narrative of that story, the son is going to be called a wonderful counselor. Terminology going back to the Exodus. The mighty God. Boy, that's, that's interesting. Sounds like the Messiah was never going to be made a God. It sounds like he was already prophesied to be God right there. The mighty God, the everlasting father, 
the Prince of Peace, which by the way, if you go to Micah's prophecy, he develops the idea of Prince of Peace even further. Again, Micah, I believe, is building on Isaiah's prophecy. I believe he was a great part of working with Isaiah during this time. But what we see is development of the, of the subject. And then we get into chapter 40 and you do have Hezekiah winning these victories and now the people are in great distress. His sin in chapter 38, 39 has come back to slightly haunt the people and will continue to haunt them for the next 100 plus years. And Hezekiah fails to be the messianic figure, but chapter 40 unveils the Messiah even further and develops the idea of a son, a child, a, a servant who will come. And that you'll have a messenger and a voice in the wilderness using Exodus terminology, Exodus imagery, a voice in the wilderness. Eagles carrying and supplying from above to those who are weak, just as God said he came in like an eagle from above and fed his people and delivered his people. You see the imagery here. Isaiah's prophecies are Edenic and exile terms. He's an Edenic prophet. It's a fall. It's, it's creation itself, fall, redemption, new creation. God delivering his people out of the state of exile. God delivering his people out of the state of sin barrenness. It's the whole law, the whole Torah narrative put to imagery. That's Isaiah. And from start to finish, even in the chapter 40, delivering the people the way that he speaks of the Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, as introduced as Israel in chapter 41. But again, micro, not macro, because he cannot be, Israel cannot and did not and could not be the messianic figure in chapter 42, verses 1 and following. You have a macro fulfillment through a Messiah that the micro prophecy dedicated to Israel could not bring to fulfillment just like Hezekiah couldn't. You see the building narrative from chapters 1 and all the way to 6 in his introduction to the very, very end of the section in 39, Yes, the genre does begin to shift, but in the shifting of the genre, the theme never changes. It's hard to argue for multiple writings when you have consistent themes of prophecy that are there. Now, genre change does not mean writing changes. By the way, it's very undisputed in most circles, even secular, that Ezekiel uh, was not really Ezekiel that wrote the book. Many would concede it to being Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel changes. He goes from narrative to prophecy to apocalyptic. A lot apocalyptic. Daniel changes. He goes from narrative to apocalyptic to prophecy back to apocalyptic and to narrative back to apocalyptic. And I mean, you get my point. Zachariah does the same thing. You see, we see change of genre within other prophetic works. It's not like this would just be unique to him. The issue at stake is the dynamic nature of Isaiah's prophecies that if what he says is true, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot that needs to be answered for. And that's one of the things that I really want to get into. When you look at the layout of the book, chapters 1 through 12 is poetry and narrative. 
predominantly around Ayaz, a little bit of Uzziah. So that's the literary style. Poetry, Hebrew poetry, a little bit of narrative around the king Ahaz. Chapters 13 through 27 really gets into the poetry in a very, very deep way. Then really builds from the poetry going back to the state of deliverance and destruction, particularly from 2835, Jerusalem being destroyed and that remnant being delivered. Again, that goes back to the whole Exodus idea. You have a remnant being spared. God brings judgment on the evildoers of his people as well as his enemies. It's all Hebrew poetry. Then you come to chapters 36 through 39 and you're back to a narrative again, especially in 38, 39. Jerusalem is saved from Assyria, but Babylon is now going to be a future problem for Hezekiah's descendants. So you find narrative plus poetry around a king. When you have poetry and narrative together in Isaiah, a king is attached, just like from 1 to 12 with Ahaz and Uzziah. Now you have a king attached, Hezekiah from 38, 39, attached to poetry as well. Then we hit the section verses, or chapters 40 through 48, which is Israel being called out of Babylon as a witness to the nations, which is why people do not believe this is predictive that this is somebody writing in the current state or in the recent events. But he maintains the poetry as he does in 49 through 55, as he does through 56 through 66 with the promise of the new Jerusalem and the nations around him. But even in that, yes, there is a shift in the poetry to an apocalyptic imagery and usage in the midst of it all. But the literary movements are still the same. The genre does shift, but in the shifting of the genre, the theme and the style of its theme, its allusion to the themes have never shifted or changed. Now, one of the things I want to get into is when we're dealing with the book of Isaiah, we need to realize that I do agree that the compilers of the book probably came after Isaiah lived. I do believe it is possible that Isaiah wrote quite a bit of his work uh, and that it was later uh, compiled and edited by his disciples. Let's, let's actually talk about that. It was in his last year on earth that the Lord showed Isaiah a better king to the throne than Uzziah. When I say his last years on earth, I'm talking about the king Uzziah. And Isaiah had pretty much at this point seemed to have lost any kind of hope in the messianic figures because Uzziah was a great king, but he made a horrible, horrible, horrible mistake. Uh, he went into the temple of God thinking he can offer incense on the altar of incense, and he was absolutely stiff-armed by the priest of God who said, you're not qualified to be in here. God struck him with leprosy, who seemed to be a very... Um, strategic, victorious king who created great wealth and success, who showed to be a messianic figure, believing he could be both priest and king, failed. It could be, in my opinion, is this, that Uzziah, either by the word of the people or by his own mind, believed he was the Messiah. You say, where do you get that from? Well, what would possess a godly man 
who heeded the prophecies of Zechariah, not the one that wrote the book, but an earlier one, the prophecy of Zechariah and the friendship of the prophets and even the connection to Isaiah, what would possess a man who feared God and did good his life, who trusted the, the scripture and the law to be what it was? To go in and grab incense and believe he can march into the place as a, not a Levite, but a man from the Davidic bloodline of Judah could just march on in and offer the priestly incense to God. Unless he believed he was a priest king. Because the Messiah has been already hinted at as being both priest and king. And it could be that the reason Uzziah believed he could go in there is to go and believe he was either by the word of the mouth of the people or in his own brain. His heart was lifted up with pride, the scripture says. Yes, but pride is a motive. What was the motive? I believe the motive was he believed in his mind he was the Messiah. He was a priest king and he was going to test his theory and it did not go well. Another reason I believe this is because in the vision of the year that he died, God showed Isaiah a vision of the throne room. And in that throne room, the throne happened to be in the temple. And in that temple, he says, behold, he said, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of the hosts. Where was the king? The king was in the temple near the altar, purging sin and being worshiped as holy. A king in the temple, the very thing Uzziah tried and failed. Hmm. I think that the vision of Isaiah 6 is absolutely abundantly clear that there was going to be a king priest. It was the Lord himself. And later in John's gospel, relaying back to Isaiah 6, said that this is when Isaiah saw his glory referring to Christ. So he did get to see the Messiah as a priest king. And it gave him hope for the Davidic bloodline that there would truly come a descendant from the throne of David. Though it was not Uzziah and he was probably losing hope because he thought he was it himself, possibly. At the end of the day, it was not Uzziah, but a greater king who could be a king and priest unto God. Now, Isaiah said in 2 Chronicles 26 through 22 to have recorded the first to the last works of King Uzziah. By the way, we no longer have this document. Maybe fragmented pieces of it preserved in some of the books of 2 Chronicles and the Kings. But we do not have this giant volume that Uzziah penned, or of, of, uh, Isaiah penned of King Uzziah. Now, why am I bringing this up? I think it's important to note. What that tells us is that Isaiah was a regular and probably a very passionate writer. From the first to the last works of a king, that's an entire biography of a king. So he obviously was an avid writer. He was very much interested in works, but it also means he didn't publish all that he wrote. That did not survive. So let's pause and talk about the discrepancy here with the authorship of Isaiah. Because the scholars have said, well, there's three sections or there's two main uh, writers or there's three writers, depending on the hypothesis that are there. But here's my perspective. It is clear that Isaiah wrote volumes of works that don't 
exist anymore. I just gave you an example. There's also hints of later disciples completing the work of Isaiah. In chapter number 8, verse 16, you see kind of a hint at this. He's given a prophecy that the Lord says needs to be shut up for another time. He says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord. It's debated as to who's speaking there, is whether it's Isaiah or the Lord. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The disciples' concept is that the law, this teaching, this testimony that's been given, this prophecy by God, was going to be sealed. Now, sealing something is when it comes to a completion and it is done and you're putting its finality to its work. But notice in this statement, the testimonies to be bind in the seal done by the disciples, these followers of the messianic teachings of Isaiah. It's almost hinted that the possibility is that later disciples would finalize the works of Isaiah and those around his ministry who would be witnesses to this, God already pointed out and approved. Look at chapter 8, verse 2, if you're reading a Bible or looking this up on your own. So in chapter 8, verse 16, there's hints that these disciples would bind this up and seal it, complete it, finish it. In verse 2 of chapter 8, they're given particular names. He said, I will take to myself faithful witnesses. This is the Lord speaking. For testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son. Now, look, like, don't miss that. My faithful witnesses for testimony, meaning God said, I'm going to give you people to validate your work. Because by the law, it takes two or three witnesses for everything to be established. It's almost like God said, I'm going to give you two people that I have designated that are faithful. They're faithful to your ministry and they're going to remain faithful. They're going to follow your work. They're going to follow your teachings. They're going to follow your doctrine. And then you get to verse 16. Tell your disciples to bind it. Bind that testimony. Seal it. It's almost like God was already insinuating or indicating that there would be a completion by those who witnessed Isaiah's work and could validate it as Isaiah's work because without the two or three witnesses, nothing can be established in Jewish law and literature. And it's like God had already picked two men to do this in the completion. These men were probably a part of the school and teachings of Isaiah. I think it's likely that Isaiah had multiple writings that were unpublished that his disciples later edited and compiled into complete works for him. Now, before I get into why I believe that's the case, let me continue to give the mainline reason why I think Isaiah is also not changed from 1 to 66. Now, the genre changes. I do think there are editorial notes. But let's consider a couple things. I already mentioned the themes, but There's things that are addressed and not addressed that would require us to really place him in the second sections and the third sections into the time of exiles, because that's what they want us to believe. 40 up is during exile, 56, 66, post-exile. Here's the problem. None of the issues at hand 
through the writings of Daniel or through really the writings there of Ezekiel being a predominant one, or Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, none of these prophets deal with the message as post and really current prophets of the exile and post prophets of the exile deal with the issues Isaiah is dealing with. Isaiah never leaves the world of idolatry. Study it from one to 66. He never leaves the sin of Israel's idolatry. By the time the exile comes, idolatry becomes no issues. They're exiles. They're not in the land worshiping in the north. They're not in the furthest parts of the mountains worshiping gods. The issue of idolatry has shifted by pre, from pre-exile to mid-exile to post-exile. The issues that they were dealing with when you go into Zechariah or you, you look at the prophecies that are taking place and even you go to Nehemiah and Ezra, what is it? Intermingling. Intermingling with pagan women. Marrying outside of bloodlines. Corrupting the lines given to them through lineage. These are the issues. Complacency. Laziness. Priority problems, building homes over God's temple. These were the issues. Slander. These are the issues that they dealt with in that culture at that time. That's not what Isaiah deals with, not even in the very end. He never leaves the problem of idolatry that's, that's corrupted the land, that forced God's hand of judgment and purging that Messiah would deliver them from and God would establish them. The whole fall back into that same rut of idolatry. That's consistent. That's not the same scenery we find in the world that is post-exilic. Oh, I'm sure there were idolatry issues. There's, idol there's idols in the heart and there's idols everywhere. But the ideas and the times and the idols that are mentioned are not consistent. They're not consistent. Now, let me give you some examples. Let's go through the idea of here. Could it be possible that Isaiah wrote multiple volumes of works in his life, early stages, like when he was alive during Uzziah in chapter six, to the very end stages where in his old age, he becomes fascinated with the imagery that God has given to him. God gave him imagery like seed and exile and wilderness and fire and stump and land and tree and fruit. All of that vineyard terminology that never leaves from 1 to 66, never leaves. Fire that purges, never leaves. Chapter 66, go back to chapters earlier in the book of Isaiah, fire purging, fire purging, never changes. But it seems what changes is that the imagery grows stronger and the theme of what's happening doesn't change, but the pictures become greater pictures, bigger pictures. That's the issues that we start seeing. Could it be that Isaiah wrote many, many of these works, but he never finished publishing and editing them to their fullest? And it could it be, that's what chapter eight was saying, that God would put witnesses there that would validate the writing, validate the testimony that it truly was Isaiah's work and that they would finish and seal the work. 
I think that's what's going on. In fact, I think it can be demonstrated within the text. I give the example of this. Uh, as I stated, I'm a huge Tolkien fan. I love the works. Most people like to talk about the works. And, and that's okay. I, I like Lord of the Rings more than anybody, probably. The Hobbit. But within that, one of the things that we find is that Tolkien wrote multiple volumes around Middle Earth. The first, really the times of that first era going into the Cimmerillion. He gives legendary stories, not just outposts and outworks in the Cimmerillion. The first age consists of stories like Baron and Luthien, the children of Hurin, the fall of Gondolin, which is one of my absolute favorites with Tuor and the Hidden City. Now, these works were the earliest works of Tolkien that he wrote after his wound, uh, his wounding in World War I. He started writing these stories of the first age of these love stories like Baron and Luthien or this descendancy and the great household of Hurin and his sons and, and that whole family line and of him and his brother's family line going through that with Turin and Tuor and all the beauty that comes out in these narratives. But it wasn't until about five to seven years ago, we as readers were able to actually have these stories published for us. And it was by his son, Christopher Tolkien, who's now passed away in the last couple of years, toward the end of his life, published his father's stories. Yes, he made editorial insertions. Yes, he made editorial notes. But he published these stories 70 and 80 years after they were written. That's incredible that it took that long for us to be able to get them. And I believe it is very, very possible that the completion of Isaiah came to a complete end many years after Isaiah had died. And that the editors, those faithful witnesses, the disciples, the school of the prophets, or the school of Isaiah's prophecies, they maintained and published the works of Isaiah for him in the layout that we have. Folks, let's be real. This is not the only book of the Bible we would have that um, possibility with. We know the Psalms are in five separate books and that they were written by multiple writers over large periods of time, from the time of Moses and the sons of Korah to Asaph to David to Solomon. The Psalms are a large volume put into one giant book. Now, I'm not saying there's multiple authors like there are in the psalmist, but what I am saying is that Isaiah is given a finality that can be compiled in the narration that it is, in the order and the literary framework that it is, even after Isaiah is dead, if authorized personnel are doing it. And we already see indicators where God was already authorizing personnel to do a work like this. Let me give you, let me give you some examples of where I'm, I'm going with this. I believe you can see when the editors are writing versus Isaiah. Um, just like if you read the Sons of Hurin or Children of Hurin or the Fall of Gondolin, you'll know when Christopher Tolkien's inserting himself and when actually it's just J.R.R. Tolkien writing it. And by the way, we don't look at those works and say, well, that's not Tolkien. That's not J.R.R. Tolkien. 
that's that's the editor. That's Christopher Tolkien's works. No, we look at those works and we say that's J.R.R. Tolkien's stories. But his son, who's an authorized personnel, was there to edit it and compile it. I think it's the same concept. And we've seen it even in our world today. 80 years later, something got published publicly after its editorial framework from stories written 80 years prior. I think Isaiah wrote multiple, multiple, multiple works that his students or his faithful witnesses compiled and sealed for him later. For example, look at chapter one, verse one. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, concerning Judah. It seems already that there's somebody else writing about Isaiah himself. I mean, that doesn't prove anything, but, but look at the shift in chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Okay. See how Isaiah is speaking, writing in a first person context. Look at chapter seven and verse number three. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. Um, well, what's up with that? Why didn't Isaiah say the Lord said to me? You say, well, that happens in other prophecies too. I know, I know. But look at chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet. Write on it ordinary letters. Huh, okay. So Isaiah is the writer on this tablet. And the Lord, and he's speaking in the first person. The Lord said to me, to write these things. Now, this, what he's writing on, his disciples are going to seal. Don't miss that. We already talked about that. But notice, he's writing on a tablet in ordinary letters. His disciples are supposed to seal it later. But he's writing about this in the first person, and he's validating these witnesses that the Lord gave them and telling them and authorizing them to finish it. But go back to chapter 7, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to me, see the difference? I think at that section there in chapter 7, that's an editorial compilation and an informative statement of the editor. Chapter 8 is straight renderings from Isaiah. Look at verse 11 of chapter 8. For so the Lord spoke to me with mighty power. Notice the first person again. Look at chapter 20. <clears throat> then it seems to be Isaiah all the way through. Like in writing in that consistency of the first person from chapter 8 forward. Then you get to chapter 20, verse 2. And you start finding a very interesting change of scenery. <clears throat> this is in the year that the commander came to Ashdod when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him fought against Ashdod and captured it. And at that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos. N note, note the editorial insertion. The compiler here, writing. It was at that time the Lord spoke to Isaiah, speaking of a past conversation about something that took place. So what would that have looked like? So the editor right here would have come in and actually just give clarity by saying, it was at that time. So here's Isaiah's prophecies. It was during this year, during the time, Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent to fight against Ashdod. 
that the Lord came to Isaiah and told him this. And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's happening in chapter 20? I think the, editor, the editors are taking the writings of Isaiah and giving it an, a, a beginning preface and then going straight into what Isaiah wrote. Just like in Tolkien, <clears throat> in a lot of the beginning sections of the chapter, Christopher Tolkien will give an editorial statement of clarification and then jump his father right into the narrative. I see similar patterns. And just, just go through the whole book. Continue to find these. You'll see what I'm talking about. First person, and then somebody talking about Isaiah. I believe this is the difference between the editor and the writer. The difference is, it's okay to have an editorial framework set up if they're authorized to do it, which I think in chapter eight makes very clear they were. So do I believe Isaiah lived to compile the whole thing himself? No. Do I believe the writings of Isaiah are actually Isaiah? Yes. I think the themes are his. I think the issues of sin that he's still combating are the same sins. I think he's developed as a prophet as he's gotten more developed vision. As the vision of God is developed, his prophecies are going to develop. His genre is going to develop. And as he aged, he became a more developed, well-rounded prophet. Do I think he compiled all the work together and made it what it is? No. No. I think his disciples or his school, the prophets of Isaiah, whatever you want to call them, came in, just like chapter 8 said, and sealed and finished the work. Not that they wrote it for him, although they gave, it looks like, some editorial clarifications. And this is consistent with what I said earlier. Nobody doubted whether it was Isaiah. Jesus quoted from every section of Isaiah and called it every one of those sections and alluded to, I should say as well, to those sections of Isaiah and called it Isaiah. The other writers referring back, Paul, the New Testament scribes and writers, alluding back to Isaiah, called it Isaiah. The Septuagint translated the whole thing. The commentaries give credit. All the ancient Jewish commentaries give credit to it being Isaiah in every one of those three sections. There's no dispute, just like there's no dispute that the fall of Gondolin, though it has editorial notes of his son who was authorized to do so, and all the other volumes that he wrote before the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, there's no dispute as to whether that's Tolkien's work just because an authorized editor came in. Folks, that's not new either. I mean, Jeremiah later on after Isaiah, he had Baruch who edited all his stuff and he wrote it for him. Paul had scribes and amanuensis. They all demonstrate consistency just because the genre changes does not mean it. Now, one of the things that needs to be stated in, in kind of a finality, I need to wrap this thing up, is the big prophecies of, of, of Cyrus. Because that's on some of the biggest issues. Like, well, that cannot be. I mean, that just cannot be prophetically true. Well, <clears throat> you know, just the argument of, well, we know prophecy is not true, so that must have been done later argument. That doesn't work. I mean, like, you can't just because just because it, it doesn't make sense or you like it doesn't mean it's not true. Or just because something was considered prophecy doesn't mean it's no longer valid. 
Because there's a lot of things, even in the first section of Isaiah, that were predicted right. For example, I mentioned chapter 39. He states in the last first section, the first writer, that the children of the descendants of the king Hezekiah and his nobility would be hostages and slaves in the house of foreign kings. Then you hit Daniel chapter number one and wham, you got that right. Just Does that mean 39 was written after Daniel? Folks, when you start down that trend, you have to give credit to all the other prophecies that are in the quote-unquote undisputed sections that become true. That's a long trail that will lead you nowhere. That's not a good reason. If prophecy is true in 39 and fulfilled in Daniel 1, it's either a lucky guess or it's exactly right. And if he's right in section one, why can't he be right in section two? And why can't he be right in section three? Section two has, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, I do believe personally that later editors, possibly, possibly, I'm not saying that Isaiah could have predicted his name correctly, possibly uh, got Cyrus's name right. Uh, and put it there for for Isaiah. But to, to, to make that a main issue is really to miss it because the prophecies there preceding all of this, he's my shepherd to fill, fulfill all my purpose. If you read all of chapter 40 up to this point and what is predicted to happen under the Persian Empire, if that is accurate alone, the name Cyrus is irrelevant if Isaiah wrote it predictively or if his editors inserted it for clarity. It doesn't matter because the prophecy as a whole ended up being right. The whole set to just focus on the name of Cyrus is to miss the whole prophecy. The whole prophecy is that something would happen in the future and then Cyrus would later actually fulfill it. And he did. Which means Isaiah in his original writings was predicting this to be the case and it happened. It happened. Whether an editor, a later editor that was qualified to do so came in and inserted Cyrus's name to give clarity or not doesn't change that Isaiah and that whole section from 40 to this point got it right. Prophecy's true whether Isaiah wrote Cyrus's name or his later disciples did for clarity. I think to miss that and to only focus on Cyrus's name is to miss the fact that he got all the prophecy part of it right. And that the editors saw what Isaiah put was true and accurate and made sure to include Cyrus's name to make sure you didn't miss it. Or Isaiah got it all right. Either way, I'm fine with it. I don't think it's worth losing sleep over. So yes, I believe Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. I believe all of it is his. I believe that some editorial notes are inserted for clarity, uh, as I demonstrated. I believe Isaiah is the author, and we can say from 1 to 66, this is the book of Isaiah. I do not buy in the Deutero or the tri-fold version of it or anything of that sort. I think that is unnecessary and unneeded. I do believe it is authentic. I think it goes back to the prophet Isaiah. We have every historical reason to believe it. We have every ancient citation to believe it. We even have the internal evidence and consistency of literary and theme 
to believe it as well. And he gives hints of future editors and disciples who would seal his work. And we have what we have today in the form we have of Isaiah today. Well, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening as we continue to go through the Bible, discussing original authorship and composition. I trust this was a blessing to you. As always, thanks for tuning in. Like and share these as they come in, and that'll be a big help. Grace and peace to you.